0: Hello, and welcome to episode four of the History They Don't Teach podcast. I'm Michael Cisternino, and I am joined by Avi and Max. Hey. We've talked about the military side of the Rojava revolution, and we'll get back to that sort of thing next episode. But today, I feel it's important to take some time to go over just what made Rojava's revolution so unique in history. We've already skimmed through the ideas of Oshelon and Bookchin, but now we're going to do a deep dive into those ideas and what they did to society. Now, just a warning to you listeners, this episode is going to be somewhat long compared to the previous ones, so buckle in. So
1: you're saying um, Bookchin and have are pretty relevant in the Rojava Revolution's history?
0: Yeah, like their ideas form the foundation of how society is structured there. So we've made reference to a radical altering and remaking of society in the previous episode. And we've definitely given some attention to Bookchin and Oshalan. But for the subject of this episode, I feel like we should probably uh, back up and take a closer look at what communalism and democratic confederalism and what they're trying to create. So to do that, we have to go back to Murray Bookchin and his basic ideas about how society should be run Which he called communalism. So in Bookchin's own word, communalism constitutes a critique of hierarchical and capitalist society as a whole. It seeks to alter not only the political life of society, but also its economic life. On this score, its aim is not to nationalize their economy or retain private ownership of the means of production, but to municipalize the economy. It seeks to integrate the means of production into the existential life Yes, the existential life of the municipality, such that every productive enterprise falls under the purview of the local assembly, which decides how it will function to meet the interests of, sus- of the community as a whole. So that may sound like a mouthful, but it boils down to the idea that society should be decentralized without private or states of control or state control, with individual communities left able to run themselves. Bookchin so thought it's this like
2: would
1: communism on a large scale, but hierarchies on a small scale?
0: No, like, he, what he, he is specifically saying we should get rid of hierarchies, and to do that we need to get rid of state centralization and private ownership, so the communities themselves should be left able to run themselves. So, you take out the big hierarchy and put in a little hierarchy? No, you just (laughs) get rid of all hierarchies.
1: But, but. Didn't you say that the didn't didn't Bookchin say that
0: uh you need to create
1: like a rural sort of governments that were that were smaller and that could run themselves isn't that a hierarchy?
0: Not necessarily. Like you're familiar with communes, right? I think so, yeah. He's he's advocating for direct democracy, like community assemblies. Like okay. just the people the people in a neighborhood all getting together and just deciding how they're going to run things. Okay, so Bookchin likes direct
1: democracy, and that's communalism. Yes,
0: he likes, de- he likes decentralized direct democracy, and he doesn't like the state or private ownership, and he also thought this would be more sustainable ecologically, because according to Bookchin, the consequences of the grow-or-die market economy must inexorably lead to the destruction of the natural basis for complex life forms, including humanity kind of mm-hmm. the tragedy of the commons
1: so so going back to to the rojava revolution did this
0: influence like the the revolution's ideology absolutely as as did. so like yeah, book, yeah. so ochelan ochelan borrows a bunch of stuff from book Chin and uh book Chin is also in and of himself a major inspiration as well so He wanted to eliminate the demand for perpetual growth present in both capitalist and so-called state socialist societies, and he thought that radically decentralizing and democratizing society was the way to achieve this, and we can see this in the parts of Rojava's social construct where they guarantee rights not just for the people, but also for the environment. It's really the only, the only politicality that has ever done this unless you were to count the Zapatistas.
1: Okay, that's really cool. They uh, they have (laughs) rights for
0: the environment, too. It's like something we kind of need right now. So now Oshelon took these ideas and expands on them, pitching democratic confederalism explicitly as an alternative to the structure of the nation-state and its ideological underpinnings, which he lists as nationalism, positivist science, sexism,
2: and religion.
1: So c- communalism was was Bookchin's idea, and then Oshalon jumped in and said, we can evolve this to democratic federalism. Yeah. Uh, so just evolved. Sounds like communalism with extra steps.
2: I see, I see.
0: Yeah. Democratic confederalism is very heavily influenced by Bookchin's ideas of communalism and it's really important to understand that. So
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh so do you think that the Rojava Revolution was what had the ideology of communalism more, or or the, the democratic
2: uh definitely democratic confederalism. confederalism. Like okay. so I mean I guess I guess they're they're pretty similar, but
0: Yeah. Uh so, so far we've talked about both communalism and democratic confederalism as philosophies, but we've said nothing about what it actually means in real life. So, now's when we really get into that. So, in 2014, Rojava proclaimed its autonomy and adopted its first social contract, but we're not going to spend much time on it because by 2016, Rojava was no more. What happened? Hold on, they what? revolutionized too hard. <laughs> <laughs> I I really had you for a moment there, didn't I? Oh, no. Oh, oh, they got us. They got us. They got us.
3: Boys, we've been
0: gone. In actuality, what really happened was just a bit of rebranding. <laughs> so according to Luke Mogelson from The New Yorker, uh, at this year's Aspen Security Forum, Forum, General Raymond Thomas, the head of U.S. Special Operations Command, recounted telling YPG la- leaders in late 2015 that if they wanted meaningful American support, they had to change their brand thomas went on without a day's notice they declared that they were the syrian democratic forces
1: oh okay so they just they they want to make their their revolution marketable
3: well that's the thing that america does it's like we bring democracy so they install like a dictator but they're like make sure it's called the democratic republic of whatever the country is
1: if They just called it the Democratic Republic of Oil. Then, like that would have been, it would have gotten the most airstrikes yeah. in the history of America. That someone right? oil plus democracy equals America. That's like
3: job done, boys. Of. The West has truly planted a glorious seed
0: today. Someone really needs to try that. <laughs>
1: Okay, guys, we're going to start a country. It's just going to be called the Democratic Confederation of Oil. We're going to see how long it takes for America to try to intervene.
0: Yes. Uh, So, in 2016, they ratified a new social construct declaring the Democratic Federation of Northern Syria, uh, which in 2018 was renamed to the Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria, although many people still call it to rojava it's important to remember that it isn't technically called that anymore not least because rojava was a kurdish word with a kurdish context and by that point it might not even have been majority kurdish
1: so did this influence their their ideologies like the the rebranding or did that influence how they thought of like the of
0: democratic um federalism or not really i mean they were they were becoming not really except
2: they they
0: were marketing themselves even less as a kurdish project and more as just like a democratic confederalist project
2: Seems like what you want to do to get, to get people on board, as we uh, discussed.
0: So, it may, it may be hard for us to picture a word without nationalism, positivist science, sexism, and religion, uh, but it's important to remember uh, that... O- Wait, what's ha- this thing about science? So, positivism can be circumscribed as a, politi- as a philosophical approach that is strictly confined to the appearance of things, which it equates with reality itself. Uh, since in positivism, appearance is reality... Nothing that has no appearance can be part of reality. We know from quantum physics, astronomy, some fields of biology, and even the gist of thought itself that reality occurs in worlds that are beyond our observable events. The truth uh, in the relationship between the observed and the observer has mystified itself to the extent that it no longer fits any physical scalar definition. Positivism denies this, and thus, to an extent, resembles the idol worshipping of ancient times, where the idol constitutes the image of reality. So it's like, yeah, all of reality is a joke, but we don't care. We think it's cool, man. That's 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 how Oshlan described it, anyway. Uh, I, so what what science is being discounted? Um. So. He's not. He's not against science. Oshilan, like Oshelon definitely believes in science. He just thinks that positivism uh, sucks because it bases says it's entirely its entire view on reality merely on like observable facts. And that Oshelon...
3: doesn't totally answer my question. What specifically? Like, what's a what's a scientific thing Oshilan would be like? No, no, no.
0: That gets the Oshilan stamp of shame. I mean, he doesn't, he's not denying any scientific things. I mean, I guess, I mean, in his manifesto, uh, one of his manifestos, Liberating Life, he denounces gender as a social construct, but I mean, and, I mean, I suppose that's the clearest example of him uh, being against positivist science and in favor of non-positivist science, but...
1: So let's go back to uh, what you were talking about earlier—the uh, the rebranding for American intervention.
0: I'm assuming- yeah. So
2: it Rojava uh, is
0: Kurdish for the West, um, and as as they started taking land from ISIS, they got a bigger and bigger Arab population. So might look bad to, like, be branding themselves in Kurdish when—because that makes it look like just a Kurdish, almost separatist movement when in, when they wanted to be universal. Like, Oshilan like, they were very anti-nationalist and calling it officially Rojava didn't really gel with this, so they changed it to the Democratic Federation of Northern Syria and then the Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria. In English? Yeah, so I was going to ask. They, they didn't want to be seen as just a Kurdish thing. Like well, I guess wanted, things, are,
1: things are named in every language because they can be translated
0: into every Yeah, language. but Rojava is Kurdish for the West, so they were essentially calling their territory West Kurdistan. Oh, okay, okay. Which sounds very Kurd-centric, and they wanted it to be more intersectional.
1: So they're, they're basically just trying to appeal to everyone. They're trying to appeal to America. They're trying to appeal to... Uh, to their,
0: their own Arab, Arab population. Countries. Yeah, their Arab population. Okay. I don't know.
3: Rojava sounds like a really good coffee shop down the street. It does. So I'd say hey, 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 that's best branding. Now I, I'm just, I hear they're like aren't even managers there. It's it's pretty crazy. It's now just like, I'm
0: just envisioning some hipsters going to Rojava to volunteer to join the revolution, but they're confused the whole time because they think they're just going to a coffee shop. <laughs> so now back to deconstructing the tyranny of the patriarchal nation state. So we talked about Oshlan's fixation for stateless Neolithic societies five thousand years ago as a time before patriarchy or slavery. Um, and so here's an excerpt from uh, "Liberating Life," I believe. Uh, Avi, would you mind reading it in the Borat voice?
1: <clears throat> my name is Borat. And this is my wife. So I know I know how to say like my name is Borat in the Borat voice, but I, all these all these weird new words are going to be such a
4: big struggle. Yeah. During the Neolithic period, the complete communal social order, also called primitive socialism, was created around women. This social order saw none of the enforcement practices of the state order. My name was that wasn't in it. Yet, it existed for thousands of years. It is this long-lasting order that shaped humanity's collective Consciousness. And it is our endless yearning to regain and immortalize this social order of equality and freedom that led our construct of paradise.
0: Yeah. So, Ochelon saw the remains of this Gianna Cominal, communal life, in the villages of Kurdistan, conceiving as Kurds sort of as democracy's chosen people. and. He had already laid out his vision for a return to what he called democratic civilization. So this is from his book, Democratic Confederalism.
4: In construct to a centralist bureaucratic understanding of administration, exercise of power, how many five-syllable words do you need to use, oh my god, of power? Confederalism poses a type of political self-administration where all groups of society and cultural identities can express themselves in local meetings. General conventionalists and councils, this understanding of democracy opens a political space to a strata of society and allows for the formation of different and diverse political groups.
1: I'm slowly slipping into like a um... Oh, God, what's the the, the, the vampire's name? Dracula? (laughs) Dracula. I'm slowly slipping into Dracula. In this way, it also advances the political interrogation of society as a whole.
2: Politics becomes a part of everyday life. Let me suck your blood. (laughs) So.
0: So, uh, you're probably curious about how the Democratic Union Party went about trying to bring this all about?
1: Yeah, well, how, do they, how do they do that?
0: So it's kind of twofold. Uh, first, there's a there's this radical decentralization of power. So the root of all government in Rojava are the local communes. According to Rojava's 2016 social contract, the commune is the essential basic organizational form of direct democracy. It is a system to make decisions and management within its organizational and administrative boundary. It works as an independent council in all stages of decision-making. So these communes federate into larger councils all the way up to the Syrian Democratic Council, which is the governing body for all of Rojava, but there's almost no top-down control. The people are pretty much just free to govern themselves.
1: Isn't that, wasn't there like a a Roman sort of, Direct, direct democracy like this?
3: No, or, sorry, uh, you're thinking of the Greeks. The Greeks had a type of democracy where basically everyone could vote, but everyone had to be a rich landowner in order to to participate. Yeah, right. uh,
0: the Greeks, the Greeks had uh, what. We consider the best example of direct democracy, or most people consider the best example of it, uh, where essentially just everyone voted on everything, but it was only like 30% of the population. They had slaves who obviously weren't allowed to vote, and also women weren't allowed to vote. And Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Rojava Rojava is striving to be like that, but for everyone. No private property. Everyone gets to vote on everything.
1: So it compares... Pretty well, except for it's not just just white um, males, uh, landowner that can vote. It's, it's just
2: everyone can
0: vote. Yes. Uh, so now we're talking about radical libertarian socialists here. So obviously the direct democracy of democratic confederalism had an economic aspect. So something like three-quarters of all property was placed under community ownership, and a third of production was transferred to direct management by workers' councils.
1: Sounds like communism with extra steps.
0: Yeah, great. Uh, So according to Mesopotamia Co-op, for Rojava, which is a historically agricultural society, a communal economy is not a foreign concept there is a history and culture that supports organizing the economy this way. Thus, the process of building up a cooperative economy is rather a revitalization than a building process. So, I mean, this, this leads into what Ochelan was saying earlier about how Neolithic societies were radically egalitarian, and that radical egalitarianism was lost. Uh, with, was lost like 5,000 years ago with the, the creation of the first states. Right. So now you're probably curious as to how the communes work because like obviously it's more like complicated than just like
3: Return communes. to Caveman. Is that the is that the word you're looking for?
0: No. <laughs> yeah. Get rid of get rid of hierarchy. Exactly.
4: Exactly me, me caveman. Me no hierarchy. If stone be me, I want stone. Nobody else take stone. I have big club. Me take big club. Me get stone.
3: Well, no, grub stone is
0: everyone's stone.
4: Oh yeah, that's right. I use big club to make sure everyone gets same stone.
0: Not really. I mean, they don't. They don't reject technology. In fact, they believe that technology can be used to uh, help uh, help protect the environment.
1: Okay, that's good. So they're not returned to caveman. Yeah.
0: They are not returned to caveman. They are returned to no hierarchy.
4: Returned to no hierarchy.
0: So so, uh, now in every commune, there are five committees present. These are the education committee, the health committee, the economy committee, uh, which are all pretty self-explanatory in what they do. And then you have the problem-solving committee and the self-defense committee. They're a bit more out there and radical. Uh, so Wait, the
1: problem-solving committee is radical. I get how like the fen- the defense committee could be radical. How is the problem-solving committee radical?
0: So recently, uh, with with the rising civil unrest here in the U.S., you've probably you've probably heard the catchphrase "all cops are bastards" thrown about. You've probably heard calls to defund them. Maybe you've even had calls to abolish them. Mm-hmm. I, I believe you heard those calls coming. I from have. Me, I too have been on
3: uh, the Instagram profiles of uh,
1: people. Zoomers.
0: Yeah, Zoomers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so you're probably wondering what exactly this all means.
2: What does it mean? Well, what does so, it mean?
0: It's kind of. I mean. People have cited Rojava as an example of how you would go about abolishing the police. Uh, So Rojava Mm. does have the Asayish, but they're like security guards and stuff like that. They don't, they staff checkpoints, work as traffic controllers, stuff like that, but they don't patrol neighborhoods or like answer 911 calls or any of that stuff you typically associate with police.
4: So you do call if you need 911?
0: Uh, Literally like anyone else in your community. Uh,
4: Oh, Okay. Just get Bill down here. Bill's got a shotgun. He'll take care of all you need. Cat's took it a tree. He'll just shoot Diane. No problem.
0: (laughs) You're not that far off from how it actually works.
1: Okay, good, good. (laughs)
0: Uh, Excellent.
3: That's my idea of a utopian society. Billy fixing...
0: Billy's buckshot fixing everything. Redava does not have police. (laughs) Police are the armed thugs of the ruling class. They are an occupying army, not meant to protect people, but to preserve hierarchy and private property, which Rojava rejects. When the people take self-defense into their own hands, when the state, hierarchies, and class society have been done away with, the police will become obsolete. Mm. (laughs) So this is is where the self-defense and problem-solving committees I mentioned earlier come in. Now, the self-defense committees run the HPC, or Civil Defense Forces, which are made up entirely of the members of commun- the communities they protect and can only act as instructed by the people who actually live there. And they rotate, so eventually everyone in the commune will be trained at, self- at the self-defense of themselves and their comrades.
4: Everyone, everybody was kung fu fighting.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh,
2: so, so
1: everybody is the police. Hmm?
2: And uh, what's the, the
3: what's the, no one is. No, it was, it was the music. It was the band. We are the police, the country.
4: They are the police.
3: Yeah.
1: Whole country is the police. Wait, does that mean if like, then if like all cops are bastards, then like everybody is just a bastard in that country.
0: Actually, that's the sentiment. I Well, no, Avi. Dude, that would suck. Because there's no country. And also when everyone's a cop, no one's a cop.
4: Oh, there you go. No I, I don't bastard. know.
0: I'm a pretty
3: big supporter of APAB. All people are bastards.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's how it would go down pretty much, huh? So are they like are they civil? Is it is it pretty utopian? Because I yes. feel like this could either go like very, very well or very, very poorly.
0: I mean, I haven't been there, but judging from the accounts of people who have, it's like people have According to testimonies of journalists who went there, they they felt safer there than they did in American cities.
1: Wow, that's actually big. Yeah, uh, big if true, right there. Yeah. Although, could you imagine, mm-hmm. like, like Americans doing the same thing? I don't know if it'd be the same. I don't know. We we, we um we're we're kind of built different. <laughs>
2: uh, so yeah, Enjoy so they abolished
0: cops, which. <laughs> Pretty Mm -hmm. radical, but we've only talked about the self-defense committees so far. We haven't even gotten started on the problem-solving committees.
1: Yeah, let's hear how they're, like, radical. I want to hear this. It's like problem-solving committees. Everyone
0: everyone gets to use the
3: talking stick, not just the teacher.
0: (laughs) So, Dude, yeah. So, Rojava does have official courts. Uh, but generally, their use is seen as something of a last resort. Something is only brought to the court's attention if it can't be resolved diplomatically by the problem-solving committees. And I do mean diplomatically. Much of what they do involves facilitating negotiations between parties with grievances, grievances from domestic disputes to blood feuds and cycles of revenge killings. What, 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 uh, uh, I'm sorry, What? <laughs> what? <laughs> Can you back that up?
3: Unpack that a little bit.
1: Well, like, wait. So it's like it's like, oh yeah, you know, you know uh, journalists have felt safe there. Also, in the next sentence, so yeah, about these blood feuds and uh, spurter spree killings.
3: Well, the the journalists aren't part of the families that are having the blood feuds, so that's why they feel safer.
2: Exactly. Well,
0: I mean, there's so there's a reason they're called problem solving committees, and not like crime-fighting committees or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and that's because so-called retributive justice isn't really seen as productive. I mean, it's not. It, it couldn't stop the honor killings. Like, the old government, the old honor killings were still going on, despite the fact that, like, the Syrian regime would, like, put people in jail and shit. Uh, so, yeah, retributive justice, or justice focused on like just punishing people doesn't really work. It's not productive. It doesn't fix these problems. So many of, many of the courts in Iraq have the slogan Revenge is for the weak emblazoned on them. And uh, even in, ca- in the case of something being elevated to the courts, the idea of punishment is discouraged in favor of rehabilitation. If Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi himself had been captured, he would have been eligible for a sentence of at maximum 20 years in prison.
2: Hmm. so yeah uh after the first
4: three months i think hitler has really really come back into his own oh boy he's, he's really Here we go. he's really uh you know understanding uh dude i got nothing for this bit <laughs> i don't know i,
3: I don't think- know you came out the gate swinging This does bring up a good question. Do you think there are people bad enough to warrant a more
0: severe punishment? I don't think anyone deserves to die. I don't think the justice system should be about getting revenge. I just think it should be about solving problems. Like, obviously, I don't think Baghdadi deserves to, like, be shot, but, like, it's a question
2: of, like, whether he needs to be...
0: To solve that problem.
1: Okay, mm. well look at a, look at it from a utilitarian perspective. I was yes. literally <laughs> just
0: about to go there.
1: Oh man, when you look at it, something from a utilitarian perspective, you'd always end up like justifying really crazy stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so So anyway, back to the Hitler example. Look at it from a utilitarian perspective. You know, I mean, <laughs> is a Nazi flag really that bad, guys?
2: Come on. It brings now, a Nazi flag cool joy. Really is that bad. It is pretty yeah, exactly. bad. It is pretty uh, bad. But now, if he just
3: has it in his own
2: house, and no <laughs> it's it brings exactly, his happiness up.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Utilitarian perspectives, guys. Always think about it from a utilitarian perspective. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is a disclaimer. I'm pretty sure we're all in agreement that Hitler was a pretty bad dude.
0: Yeah, he was yes. a prick. It. Coming out of this podcast, Hitler was bad. <laughs> yeah, trying... we learned something. Yeah, we're trying to point out that there are
3: flaws in utilitarianism, and yeah. also flaws in Hitler. That's another another one
0: good thing to put up there.
1: Yeah, I guess so.
0: Yeah, so those are those are the problem solving committees and the self defense committees abolishing cops and abolishing retributive justice. Uh, <laughs> So now, of course, because Ocalan is Ochilan, he writes in Liberating Life that women's freedom cannot just be assumed once a society has obtained general freedom and equality. A separate and distinct organization is essential, and women's freedom should be of a magnitude equal to its definition as a phenomenon. So obviously, you're going to need, alongside the mixed-gender institutions, parallel all female institutions or else you're going to risk male domination within the co-ed institutions. So title one of article 12 of the social contract states, uh, the democratic federation of Northern Syria adopts the co-presidency system in all political, social, administrative, and other fields. It considers it a main principle in equal representation of both genders the co-presidency system contributes to organizing and establishing the democratic Confederate system of women as a special entity. So every, so every official position in Rojava is filled by two people and one of them has to be a woman. So the communes will elect can communes.
4: both of them. Can
1: both of them be a woman?
0: I think so, but I'd need to check. Uh, okay. So the communes elect co-presidents, uh, typically one man and one one woman to represent them at the district council and the district councils do the same thing for the city councils and so on. And in addition to this, they also create women's councils, which operate as all female auxiliaries to the communes, as well as the larger people councils. And they have veto power over them in matter of women's issues and healthcare. again, so as to prevent the domination of women by men. Uh, Now, this is, all, this is all very nice, but just on a personal level, gender quotas in official positions aren't really going to do much to end the patriarchy on an economic level. That is women's economic reliance on and subservience to man. Ochelon again writes that uh, the most brutal period for a woman was when she was ousted from the economy during the process of capitalist civilization. This leaves the woman destitute of economy, which has become the most striking and profound social paradox. The entire female population has been left unemployed. So obviously, as long as women do not have economic as well as political autonomy, the patriarchy will continue to exist. How do you think think, uh, the revolutionaries in Rojava went about
2: fixing that?
1: You probably thought of something really clever
2: yeah uh, so take yeah, the it's... take the
3: the no girls allowed because cooties signed down on exactly. the economy
1: <laughs> that'll do it that will do it
0: Their solution your solution was just very simple and also very effective in every town and village there is a women's house where women and girls can access advice, counseling, protection, and shelter in the face of many forms of gender-based violence, honor killings, post-traumatic stress, and physical and mental health problems. Domestic violence is widespread, especially among the IDPs, or internally displaced people, uh, and many women have been victims of sexual violence. So it's hard to overstate how instrumental uh, these women's houses were in establishing economic autonomy uh, for women in Rojava all of a sudden, any woman could simply up and leave a patriarchal household or living situation. That's actually incredible.
3: <laughs> we need something like that in here in the States.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. they just... they just These guys, the oppoists, just somehow managed to, like, do so much so simply, and yet also so effectively.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I, I, I would do admit that I always really like more, like, a, I don't know what it's called, I think, like, Welfare. For for the general population, I think it's always yeah, it's always like, pretty good. It sounds like they have it down pretty well. I
3: think you have to implement it correctly, but yes, welfare welfare yeah, like, is very very good.
0: Yeah, like democratic confederalist libertarian socialism is like it fucking works. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, this
3: we're gonna have to come back to, but I think there are definitely there are elements that are very very much yeah, so applicable like, to so-
0: any society. Any woman mm-hmm. can just up and up and leave um a patriarchal living so- situation and have and like still be like able to go on living. So you just have a yeah, have a support of network. Stories of, yeah, you just get tons of stories of young women and girls just going to their local women's house to join the YPJ or get divorced or just Get job training so they could be economically independent. No one was really stopping them anymore. Yeah. No, that's that's incredible.
2: Yeah, I'd say so, that's
1: pretty freaking pog on an economic level, dude.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So all of this, the the direct democracy, the collectivizations, uh the feminism, it, it all contributed. create something I would like to call revolutionary optimism. Uh, It's something which I think was present in Spain's 1936 revolution as well as in other radical libertarian socialist projects throughout history. Uh, George Orwell could have been describing describing Rojava when he said, uh, above all, there was a belief in the revolution in the future a feeling of having suddenly emerged into an era of equality and freedom. Human beings were trying to behave as human beings and not as cogs in the capitalist machine.
2: It, like, you just get this sense of, like, a new world being born, of, like, anything being now possible. Like, it's, it's really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so
0: Matt Broomfield, a-, a journalist who went to Rojava, like, wrote that uh, local people have told me of being moved to tears as they approached a checkpoint flying YPG colors for the first time, never having thought this day would come. Ask any Kurd here how it feels to call their city by its Kurdish name. The emotional weight of that day is still felt here, even if it is forgotten in the West. So you should really just represented this total remaking of society. And again, I cannot stress enough the feeling of like, I mean, Ochelon, Ochelon would call it total divorce. Uh, The divorcing of a society from 5,000 years
2: of hierarchy and patriarchy. Yeah. sounds pretty utopian.
0: Yeah. So... Since the start of the revolution, and especially by late 2015, when it became clear that ISIS had failed in its bid to destroy Rojava, uh, this idea of a bright future made suddenly possible. Uh, was It was in the air. Only in Rojava would some people just go, fuck it, we're starting an all-women village.
1: Uh, sometimes sometimes you really you need to say, dude, fuck it, we're just starting an all womens village.
0: Yeah, uh, which they did. <laughs> uh,
2: so, yeah. Uh, of course I, they did. They always do. It. It's just fucking...
0: There's so much stuff to talk about in this, in like the social aspects of the revolution. And I mean, undoubtedly we're going to return to that, but I... But um, we're kind of running out of time now, so I guess I'd like to end this episode with an observation. Rojava is still in its infancy and we shouldn't be under the illusion that all four million people there are diehards for the revolution. Patriarchy and dictatorship are all very recent memories and there are certainly men who would be fine with going back to the way things were before the revolution. You can already see this reversion to capitalist modernity in the areas currently occupied by Turkey. The revolution isn't really set in stone yet. Uh, it, it hasn't become fully normalized. Uh, but right now, I would like to think about what that would look like. A new generation, one growing up in the communes, without ever having lived under patriarchy or capitalism. It's quite possible Rojava may not last, last that long, but it's quite possible that it will. They have shown us another world is possible. And I would just end in the words of that great revolutionary from from 1936 in Spain, Buenaventura de Rudy,
2: that new world, uh, there is a new world in our hearts.
0: That world is growing by the moment. So in the spirit of securing the revolution, join us next episode where Piss Pig Granddad makes a
2: return for the fall of the caliphate.